Hey guys, my name's Chris, one of the pastors here. Today we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, 12 through 14 is going to be our text. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. Let me start also by saying happy Mother's Day to the moms in the room. Can we just uh, clap for them real quickly? Say thank you for the way that you serve, the way you sacrifice, the way you love, and the way that you lead in the home. It absolutely matters. Everyone in this room has a mom. We show honor to moms. We celebrate uh, the mundaneness of motherhood at times and all that it takes to love and stir children to the Lord. Additionally, um, whenever I say thank you to moms, I realize there's women in this room who that wasn't their story. They've longed to be moms, but because uh, of what God has maybe done in their life, maybe because of infertility or uh, the story that's happened, miscarriages, they haven't had that privilege. And so just so you guys know, there's folks in this room that um, may be feeling a number of different things. So here's, here's kind of what we do in that. Uh, the scriptures say that we celebrate with and we mourn with one another, uh, which means that we don't just blanket over stuff, but we enter into stuff and we walk with each other in that. So if you're in the room and you're experiencing that, know that my family's been there. We've had seasons of infertility. We've had uh, miscarriages. And on Mother's Day, we've processed through a number of different emotions. And here's my only encouragement. God knows. God is near. And we want to pray with and we want to walk with whatever you're in. And so just know that. So uh, happy Mother's Day to the moms in this room. Appreciate that. My, mom, my wife is a, a mom of three little kids. And there's nobody that has taught me more about the sacrificial love of God than my wife. When it's 3 a.m. and the baby's hungry again, when it's 5 a.m. and somebody pooped on themselves, when it's 7 a.m. and now they're upset that you got the wrong flavor of Cheerios, there's a lot going on, okay? And so uh, show a lot of honor in that season to mom if you can. Okay, let me start today by telling a story. Um, About 10 years ago, I was a bachelor and uh, I was broke, okay? So I'm 25 years old. I'm living in Lincoln in what I have uh, named the Studplex I have six roommates, okay? We are a group of 25-year-old men that are all sleeping on bunk beds, okay? Now, when you're a bachelor and you're living in a bachelor pad, you have one goal. You want to get rent reduced to the lowest number possible. So you invite all of your socially normal friends to move into the house so that rent's $1.50 and you can spend all of your other money on frozen burritos, okay? And uh, so that's where I'm at. Now, when you, if you've ever been in a bachelor pad, you understand you don't like go to Chip and Joanne Gaines like website and order nice furniture. You go to Craigslist. You go to uh, the fort. Like you drive around nice neighborhoods. You look for a sign that says free. You pick up stuff. You go to grandma and grandma's basement and you say, what do you, what do you want for that 90-year-old couch, mom? Or, you know, grandma. And then you just steal it. Okay? So that's what happened. So I go in this house and it is filled with just busted stuff. Just stuff that is not aesthetically pleasing, but it's functional and it works. Now, I was the owner of the nicest furniture item in the studplex. It was a couch that we affectionately titled Big Bertha, okay? Have you seen those big, white, deep flannel couches? That's what I had, and I love Big Bertha because Big Bertha didn't care if you spilled something on her. Big Bertha didn't care if you left your frozen burrito just right there on her and just came back later and ate it. Big Bertha didn't care if you had just worked out and you wanted to lay down, okay? It did not matter. She received you as you were, okay? So, so here's what happened. I'm 25 years old. I'm living with some dudes. It's all good. Well, then I fell in love with this girl named Kristen. And she's my now wife, mother of our three kids, love my wife. But as we're dating, and then we got engaged, and as we got engaged, I started to think, okay, I want to start... Uh, I want to have a, I don't want to live with the dudes. She's not moving into the studplex, so I probably got to move out. So I go and buy a place. We get ready. I remember walking through this place that we bought, and I thought to myself, I had this thought as a 25-year-old man, this is the room I'll move Big Bertha into. This is the place 
that I'll be able to bring my, I'll bring, a, bring my couch in, and then me and my wife will be able to snuggle on the couch. And what's funny, some of you guys are laughing because you know. You already know. Did, so here's what happens. I, I, I remember having this conversation with my wife, like, okay, you know, well, babe, I'm going to bring some things into the marriage. I got this couch, and I'll just move it in, and we don't need to spend extra money. I already got a couch. And at some point, she just made it very clear. She said, Chris, either the couch moves in or I move in, but we're both not moving in, okay? And I said, you know what, time out. Let me go pray about this. I want to know what God's best is for my life because this is, you know what, I can take the ring back, honestly, because it's that serious right now. Um, Prayed on it, sought some wise counsel, took the wife, not the couch. Now, I say that because what I'm trying to tell you is my status changed as a 25-year-old man. I moved from a bachelor to a married man. And because of that, uh, I had to accept a new set of realities in my life. There were some things I had to say goodbye to and some things I had to say yes to. For example, a big birth that had to go away, and instead a couch filled with throw pillows had to come in, okay? You guys know throw pillows. Every man is frustrated by the women's throw pillows. We can't sit on the couch because you got so many pillows on the couch. Now it takes me six minutes just to work myself out just to get on the couch, okay? All the, all, the, all, the, all the men in the room are like, yes and amen. If it wasn't Mother's Day, I'd be clapping right now. Okay. All of a sudden, scented candles come in, some kind of essential oils, and a diffuser is brought into my life. Vegetables instead of frozen pizzas. There's a lot of things you got to say goodbye to and say yes to when you get married. And uh, I'm glad I made it sound so great. All the guys are like, actually, that sounds terrible. I don't know if I'm ready for that. Okay. Um, so I say that because that's what Paul's doing to this church. He has explained that in the gospel, you become a new creation in Christ Jesus, that the old is gone and the new has come. You guys got to understand, when you came to know Christ, you didn't just believe in somebody so you could not go to hell and go to heaven. You fundamentally changed. You became a child of God. You've got a new spirit inside you. God has given you a new heart. He's given you a new purpose, uh, a new destiny. He's fundamentally changed you, and he's working to change you from the inside out. So because you've become something new, what Paul is saying, listen, there's a new set of realities in your life. Last week, Cameron talked about taking off. This is the illustration. You've got to take off the old man, the old self, or the old vices that used to define your behaviors and your lifestyle. So you've got to repent of sin. You've got to run from sexual immorality. You've got to stop covetousness. There's some things that are not good and God-honoring in your life that because you're following Jesus and because he's made you something new, they just don't go or are no longer in line with what Christ has done in your life. So you've got to take those things off. Additionally, this week we're not going to be talking about taking off vices, but Paul's going to take the positive. He's going to say, you don't just take some stuff off. You have to put on Christ. And he's going to give us some virtues that we need to cultivate in our life that aren't just uh, Christian morality or, or just Christian ethic, but really these virtues point us to Christ. That if you will live this way, that the people that interact with you, they're not just going to experience you or a religious version of you. They're going to experience the grace and the love, the mercy and the gentleness of Jesus Christ as they encounter you. And so that's what's on, 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 on the table for us today. I want to walk us through this passage And uh, Paul just lays out these seven virtues, and I want to say, hey, what would it look like for us to cultivate these in our lives? 
Like, like this is not just about singing songs or believing the right theology. You have to understand that Jesus Christ has made you something new. And now in response to what he's doing in you, he's going to call you to live in a unique way that would display the love of Jesus Christ to others. So let's go ahead and jump on in. That's where we're going. Seven virtues. If you've got your programs, you can follow along. The first thing that he's going to say is put on compassion. But uh, let me read verse 12 for you guys. Let's start there. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Let me stop right there. There's the command. He says in verse 12, put on. So he's telling you, okay, you got to cultivate some new behaviors, some new patterns, some new ways of living and relating to other people. He says, put on then. And here, here's where he starts. Before he tells you to do anything, notice that he starts with your identity. He's going to remind you of who you are before he tells you what to do. He's going to remind you how God has chosen to relate to you before he now calls you to relate to other people in ways they don't deserve. He says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Here's what this means, God's chosen ones. God has chosen to relate to you in a very unique and different way than maybe some folks in your life have chosen to relate to you. Um, Many of you guys have felt just the absolute pain of being rejected, maybe by dad, Maybe being rejected by a coach, maybe being rejected by an employer, maybe being rejected by a family member. And yet God is saying in his scriptures, no, 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 this is who you are. You're the person who I've received. You're the person who I've chosen. You're the person who I initiated relationship with. You're the person who I pursued because I love you. You're chosen by God. Um, I, I love to preach this. This is not me just pushing a little theological nugget, but just, just so you know how your story went. Your story did not go, you know what? I decided I kind of want a relationship with God because um, I want to try some new things in my life. No, your story goes that God loved you enough to seek and save you and pursue you and initiate, and he chose you, okay? So he gets the glory and he gets the honor, but he's the one saying, listen, you are dead, and I pursued you, and I made you alive. Additionally, he says you're holy. You're chosen and you're holy. What that means is you're set apart. You're set apart. You've been saved by Jesus. You're being sanctified or changed and transformed by Jesus. And he says he's made you holy, which means he set you apart for his unique, special, redemptive purposes. God has set you apart. Last thing, he says you're not just a means to an end. You're not just a project. But he says that you are his beloved ones, his beloved ones. Which means that you have to know, Christian, that God's heart for you is filled with affection. Like, you're just not a project to him. He's not just tolerating you today. He's not just putting up with you today. He's not just mildly disappointed with you today. He absolutely loves you. And I love that. He, he's saying, the people that I, I've called to myself, they're not just people who sing songs about me. They're the people who I love. And you have to understand this because I think so many times in the Christian life, we can know some verses and we can sing some songs But in the back of our minds, we have this kind of disappointed father in heaven that's looking down at us. And here's what happens. Here's what's scandalous about the love of God. you got to understand, God has seen you at your worst. He knows when you've blown it. He knows when you've been slow to improve some things in your life. He knows when your affections for him have kind of waned and you haven't abided in Christ. But instead, you've kind of just got caught up in some things, some busyness maybe. And guess what? His love for you is not dependent on your steadfast love for him. He loves you not because you're good, but because he's good. That's what's beautiful about the love of God. We can rest in it. It's this one-way, never-ending, unconditional, pursuing love that he has towards broken people. And if you're like, Chris, you sound crazy, then just look to the cross. Because for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know who he gave his, his only son for? Sinful, broken people like me and you. 
Do you know why he did it? Not just so we could worship a religious symbol, but because God was crazy in love with very unlovable people. That's what he did. Isn't that powerful? Who are you today? You are loved by God. You're a child of God. You're chosen and you're holy. That's what he's saying. Now, he's reminding the church and us of our identity. And now he's going to say, because of this new identity, here's what it looks like. And here's what it's going to play itself out in our relationships with other people. And he's going to give us these seven virtues. So let's keep reading and jump in. He says then, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. So let me give a little definition of compassion. Compassion is living with a concern for the welfare of others' tangible needs. It's an empathy for others, not a posture of indifference. Compassion says, what's wrong and how can I help? And compassion in the Roman Empire or the Greek system and culture was not a super high value. Um, What was valued in these cultures 2,000 years ago was efficiency and strength. Um, The strong got a seat at the table. Um, There wasn't a lot of room in society for people who couldn't kind of do it on their own. And so what this looked like is it was kind of a barbaric society. If you got injured and you weren't going to get better, they would take you outside of the city walls, place you there, and wait for you to die. If you had a child that had a defect, uh, that was sick, that wasn't going to get better, there was no long-term care. There was simply an opportunity to take them outside of the city wall and let them die. Mom and dad get uh, sick, start to lose their mind. They're not going to put them in a nursing home, walk with them, give them some dignity. No, no, no. This is just how it's going to end for them. And Jesus came and he altogether reoriented uh, the culture. He displayed what is a countercultural value that we now call compassion. Matthew chapter 9, it says that Jesus saw the multitudes of people, people who were sick, people who were hungry, people who were religiously oppressed, and he said he had compassion on them. See, Jesus, what stood out in this culture is instead of walking past the sick person, he got near to the sick person and he healed them. Um, What stood out is instead of Jesus walking past the hungry and saying, it's probably your fault, he moved towards them and he fed them. And instead of seeing people who were religiously oppressed and and moving past them and echoing some more laws and some more burdens to put on them, he simply preached good news and set the captive free. That's our Jesus. He showed compassion. And if you've ever read the Bible, one of the ways I want to help you today is if you've ever read the Bible and you've, you've read the story of maybe Jesus interacting with the hungry and Jesus feeding the hungry, or Jesus walking up to the lame and healing the lame, and you kind of thought to yourself, I am so much like Jesus. I help people all the time. You're not necessarily reading the Bible rightly. (laughs) See, the primary character you represent is the one who needed to be healed. You, You represent the one who couldn't feed himself. You represent the sick and the outsider. And until you understand that Jesus stopped by that Jesus pursued, that Jesus moved in, you don't understand how the God of compassion has showed you compassion, okay? And then from that posture, when you understand that, that Jesus didn't just see a a problem, he saw a person that was made in his image and he chose to pursue, from that posture, then we can be compassionate towards one another, amen? We've got to first receive that, say, God, thank you for pursuing and not walking by. Thank you for loving and not just minimizing. Thank you, God, for entering in and not just stepping away like is human culture. 
And so that's this Jesus. He says, put on compassion. I've seen our church do this in so many ways. There's a story of a guy at our church recently that surfaced. A guy named Todd interacted with this guy named Dennis. Now, Dennis has been in and out of jail, okay? So Dennis has got some tattoos that are somewhat regrettable. Okay, I'm just going to call it out, all right? And Dennis has made some decisions that were not all that wise. But Todd is a dude uh, about my age, heard about Dennis and his situation. And Dennis is struggling uh, to keep up financially. And Todd said, you know what? I'm not going to move away from this guy. I'm going to show compassion to this guy. So he says, Dennis, what are you good at? Dennis is like, I don't really do computers and email and typing. That's not in my skill set. So he says, can you clean cars? Dennis is like, yes. I used to have motorcycles. I used to love to clean them. That's my thing. I'm in. So Todd says, how about this? I'm going to start a little business for you, a detailing business for you. I'm going to get a graphic designer I know to make you some business cards. I'm going to line up some customers for you, some friends and family, and different people I know. And, uh, and then I'm going to help you buy some of the, the starter supplies that you're going to need to get this business off the ground. So now Dennis walks around our church, not with just a, a spirit of defeatedness or inferiority, but with a place of dignity. What Todd did was show this man compassion. Didn't give him a handout, gave him a hand up. It showed the tangible love of Jesus Christ to the watching world. Todd has... Four kids, a business of his own, he has lots of things to do, and yet he made somebody else's problem his problem and showed compassion. Amen? Is that not a picture of Jesus Christ? We celebrate that here at City Life. Okay, number two, he says, put on kindness. Put on kindness. Kindness is living with a tenderness towards others and actively working towards their good. So think of a shepherd. All the imagery in the Bible is of shepherd caring tenderly for a sheep. That is putting on kindness. Number three, put on humility. Humility is living with a a moderate view of self and a high view of God. One of my favorite definitions of humility is um, not thinking highly of yourself or not thinking lowly of yourself, but simply not thinking of yourself. The person who doesn't think they're all that good at life can be just as prideful. Woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. Let me tell you about how dysfunctional I am. Let me tell you about how uh, I'm a victim I am. That's just as much pride. Pride is the love and the obsession of self. High view or low view of self. And what the Bible would say is God uh, exalts the humble and he humbles the proud. He says cultivate as a virtue in your life humility and put off as a vice in your life pride. So here's what this looks like. One of the things that I talk about with pride or humility is just knowing your right place in life. Knowing your right place in life. So what humility looks like if you understand scripture is in the natural man... We are the biggest thing in the universe. You just have to understand, if you've ever been around a three-year-old, they think they rule the world, okay? Um, They will tell you what they want, and they'll remind you of what they want. And if you don't give them what they want, you will have consequences for not meeting that desire. And I found out that adults were all the same. We still live with that same way. We just get what we want in different ways, okay? So what's natural to the heart of man is to make us the biggest thing in the universe— Other people then exist to serve us, and God is of value only to the extent that he serves us, okay? But what the kingdom of God does is it flips that upside down, and what does he do? He says, love God. He's number one. He's the creator. Your life orients around him. He says, love other people. And scripture is going to say, consider others to be greater than yourself. And then finally, where are you at on that list? At the very bottom of the Tolman pole. And so other people don't exist to serve you. You exist to serve them. And God doesn't exist there to serve you. You exist to worship and serve him. This is what humility looks like. And um, when I think about Jesus and 
One of the titles that Jesus wore is he's the humble king. And if you've ever remembered, Jesus comes into Jerusalem about seven days before he, uh, he dies on the cross. And everybody's shouting and everybody's celebrating. He's got some fans. He's got a following. And Jesus doesn't choose to ride into town like most other people would choose to ride into town. Uh, maybe with a war horse or chariot. He goes and gets uh, a young donkey and rides into town on that. Now here's what that means. That means that like the president of the United States is rolling in on like a 2001 Kia with no hubcaps. Okay? <laughs> It's just saying, this dude has got all of the prestige and all of the power and all of the momentum. In this moment, he says, go get me the nearest donkey, right? I mean, it's just this picture of an upside-down, humble king. And I think Jesus is trying to communicate something to us, that his kingdom is for the humble. And just so you guys know why this is such a big deal, why I'm laboring on humility, is because in the kingdom of God, you cannot enter it without being humbled. Jesus had this, he told this story. Of two men who came to pray at the temple. And one said, have mercy on me, God, I am but a sinner. And the other one said, thank God that I'm not like this man. I don't drink like him and I don't smoke like him. And I don't listen to things that aren't Caleb like him. I'm not like him. And it says the first one walked away blessed and forgiven and the other one did not. See, Jesus, you have this whole thing, scripture, if you're looking for a self-help book, if you think Christianity is us just encouraging you to be a better version of you so that God can be pleased with you, then you do not understand this Bible. The story that is here is you are so jacked up, so short of righteousness that's required, that God had to come from heaven and do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Tell me about how awesome you are today, please. No, Jesus is the hero. We are not people climbing the ladder, proving to one another and God that we're awesome. We're people limping to the foot of the cross saying, Jesus, have mercy on me. It's the posture of the humble that get into the kingdom of God. So as people who believe in the gospel, we must first be humbled and then we find hope in what Christ has done. Amen? Amen. Um, one of the things that's hard for me to do right now is just brag on my friend Gavin Johnson. He has nice hair. He went to a university. I get it. I went to a state school and I'm balding, but I'm going to do it anyway. This is me just, just showing honor, okay? So uh, my buddy Gavin has really pictured to me what it looks like to be uh, a person who walks in humility. Um, Gavin is a talented guy. If you've ever been around him, he can preach an incredible sermon, teach God's word with clarity. Uh, I've sat in boardrooms with him and just seen him lead with wisdom and tact. Um, been in all kinds of different arenas and said this dude can lead at really the highest of levels. And, uh, and yet, here's what I love about Gavin. He doesn't lead out of his talent or his giftedness. He leads our church in prayer. Literally leads by being on his knees before the Lord. You can open up his journal and see the way that he stayed small before God. He's going to rely on God's word to speak into his life every single day. Additionally, when we started this church, there was this moment where uh, there was no staff. It was just me and him, okay? Uh, we were it. And so what was the facility team? Me. Who was the light team? Me. Who was the cleaning team? Us. That was the team. So Gavin had to preach that morning. We were in the chapel, which is down on 40th and Nicholas, small little building. And uh, we had a wedding the night before. And uh, I'll never forget it. He had to preach that morning. And I walk in early to kind of get ready. And he is literally vacuuming the sanctuary. And what that showed me is that in the kingdom of God, there's no, there should be no role too big or no role too small. That, listen, to be a humble leader means this is, I'm not just going to push this off, just seek the platform. I'm going to do whatever it takes to serve my King Jesus. He was a humble king. He washed feet. I can vacuum the sanctuary. 
One of the things that he still does here at City Light is if you've ever noticed it, he'll say, I'm one of the pastors. My name's Gavin Johnston. I'm one of the pastors here. He doesn't say, I'm the CEO pastor. I'm the founding pastor. I'm the lead pastor. I'm the primary teaching pastor. He says, I'm one of the pastors here, which is just his way of saying, don't put this, don't make me bigger than I really am. Um, It's just been a picture of humility to walk with this guy, to see the way he stays small before the Lord, reliant on Jesus, not exalting himself over people, but saying, whatever it takes, King Jesus, I want to put myself in front of you. Isn't that awesome? I want us to live that out. I think of John chapter 3, verse 30, and he says, I must become less and Jesus must become greater. What a beautiful posture of humility. I hope that we can uh, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the humble king and ask the Lord to produce that kind of humility in us. Amen? All right. Got a little excited about humility. Luckily, I don't struggle with pride, so that's just for you guys, okay? (laughs) All right. Put on meekness. Put on meekness. Meekness is knowing when to be tender and when to be tough. It's restraining strength for the good of another. It's uh, the opposite of being brash or overpowering. So here's what meekness looks like. I have a a six-year-old son. Uh, His name's Paxton. He's really into Star Wars right now, which means I've never been more disappointed with my son ever in my life. His chances of homecoming king are zero right now. Zero, zero, zero. So he just had a birthday party last weekend, and we had a Star Wars birthday party, okay? I had about 26-year-olds with lightsabers in my house. It was pure chaos. But most days when I go home, uh, Paxton is waiting at the door with his lightsaber, okay? He's got it out. He's ready to go battle. And I don't even have a lightsaber. He gave me like a blue plastic bat that I wanted to play baseball with, but instead became a lightsaber, okay? So we go downstairs. We go hard, and Paxton only has one gear, which is like 100%, okay? So he is swinging, and he's not taking anything back. Like, there's just 100% force in every swing, and he's, you know, uh, some kind of Jedi, and I'm the Dark Force, Darth Vader guy, and he's just battling for the good of the galaxy. It's that serious. But in every single moment that we do this every day, I think to myself, I kind of need to remind my son I'm the alpha male. Like, I'm going to take this bat, I'm going to hit his leg, and just watch him go over end, okay? I have that moment. And if you're an honest dad, you've had that moment. Like, let me just remind him, if he wants to play for keeps, we can play for keeps, okay? And then the Spirit of God catches up. It's like, let's restrain some things, Chris. Okay, let's restrain. He's six. CPS will get called, okay? So, so then, so at some point, every time, I kind of turn my back, he hits me, I go down, he does a victory lap like he had just, you know, defeated all that is evil and won victory for the galaxy. But that's meekness, that's restraining, that's knowing when to be tough and knowing when to be tender. And that's, that's only comes in our relationship with God and relationship with others when we trust that God's got us. Okay, so when we fail to be meek in relationships, when we get brash, when we try to force doors open, when we defend ourselves, when we just blow up at people, what's happening is you're not trusting that the Lord is going to make a way. Meekness happens when you're trusting that God is sovereign, you're trusting that God is good, you're trusting that God is near, and so you're saying, I don't got to push that door open, I don't got to use all of my words to defend myself, I don't got to knock that way or make a way for myself, God's got me, he's sovereign, he's near, that's what putting on meekness looks like. Put on patience. Put on patience. Patience is more than a waiting game. It's a posture of trusting God. It's living with a long wick and not a short fuse. And uh, there's a couple things that cultivate impatience in me. Anybody else struggle with impatience? When I'm not, thank you for the honest people. When I'm not filled with the Spirit of God, it's a problem. So like when I'm driving anywhere in Omaha, 
and the person in front of me is driving five miles under the speed limit instead of the God-honoring posture of 15 miles over the speed limit, that's a problem. When I pull into a parking lot and I'm like, oh, that person's really close. They just got in their car. They're going to pull out. And then they get in their car, adjust mirrors, do their makeup, scroll through Facebook. The car started. I'm waiting. But they decided that was the time they needed to call mom. Or I don't know what they're doing in their car. Making a burrito on a George Foreman, I don't know. But they're not backing up out of my parking spot, okay? Then there's a moment in me where I'm like, where's the nearest sharp object and how do I move towards them? Okay, so this, there's this spirit of impatience in me. I need the spirit of God. But here's what it says to put on patience. God is saying this should be our posture, not impatient with one another, but patient towards one another because God has been patient towards us. How many of you guys understand there's some things in your life that have taken time to see progress on? And yet God has been patient with you. And so it is, it's like we are not living out God's heart if we are demanding our spouse to be a better version of themselves today. If parents, you're getting frustrated with your six-year-old because he's a six-year-old. You're getting frustrated with your teenagers because they're teenagers. Like what would it look like for us to model the same patience that God has had towards us and our relationship with other people? He's saying we shouldn't be people that just blow up in anger, just freak out on our spouses, just yell at our kids, just blow up at our employer or employees. What would it look like for us as God's people to be filled with his spirit, to be reminded that God has been patient and kind towards us, and then to live that out in our relationships with other people? Would that be our posture? Number six, let's read this verse one more time. Verse 13, we've got a new verse. He says this, bear with one another, and if... Uh, any, if one has a complaint against one another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So number six is forgive one another. Forgive one another. He, Paul tells us this. He says the goal here is that you would bear with one another. Here's what this means. That you would stay connected. Have you guys ever seen somebody married 50, 60, 70 years? It's amazing. What happens when somebody walks in the room and they've been married 50, 60, 70 years is their hands are wrinkly They're usually a little bit tired, but does not their life preach louder than their words? You look at that person who made a covenant, made a promise, and you know they had days where they freaked out on each other, where they were impatient with each other, where they saw the worst in each other, and yet they chose to stay. They chose to bear with and not bail out. They chose to do the hard work of dealing with conflict and forgiving one another, and you're saying there's something good and God-honoring about that commitment that they've made and that they've kept, and that is the same commitment that God has made to you. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. You are my people, and I am your God. I'm bearing with you even as you limp along. That's the kind of steadfast relationship that we have with God. Amen? It's good. It's beautiful. It's a promise that he's made to his people and a promise that he will keep to his people. And so he says, should not the people of God reflect my very character and nature? Would you as the people of God bear with one another? And it's beautiful and it's fun to talk about and yet it's really hard to do because we're sinful, broken people and we gossip and we slander and we don't keep our word and we're going to sin against one another. Christian community sounds really awesome until you get into it. We all like to talk about relationships until you're in relationships. And then you realize that you're around mildly annoying people. And if you think they're not mildly annoying, then you're the mildly annoying person in the group, okay? (laughs) 
And so what he says here next is not just bear with, but he knows that bearing with is going to be a problem. So then he says what? Forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you. And he knows that we're going to bump in. In your marriage, it's not like, hey, you can forgive them one time and then it's just going to be okay. Jesus, they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, how many times should we forgive? This is a nice thing, but like honestly, it's getting a little exhausting. He says 70 times 7. Christian, let me just remind you of this little thing in forgiveness. You've got to forgive the person in your life who sinned against you. And then that thing is going to come back up one more time. In your marriage, if you not had this, you thought you forgave them for something and then somewhat... It, the, the old emotions of hurt and bitterness start to creep in. You've got to choose to forgive again. Or that person sins against you in the same way again. And Scripture is saying, would you forgive them? Why? Not so we can just live in a harmonious relationship. Would you forgive them because the Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven you? Again, he ties it back to the gospel. If you've ever felt what it's like to have that guilt lifted, to have that shame lifted, to know that you've transgressed against a holy and righteous God and that he has paid the price to forgive you, God is now saying, would you show that same grace and forgiveness towards other people, amen? And here's why this is such a big deal. One, relationship long-term is just impossible without forgiveness. It just won't work. It will not work. And so if we're gonna be a, a people who displays the love of God, the unity of Christ Jesus to others, we're gonna have to be a community that's quick to forgive, and is not quick to bail out, all right? Number two, I think that Jesus loves you enough to call you to forgive, because if you do not forgive, you will absolutely be drinking poison, and it's called unforgiveness and bitterness in your life. So many of you guys think that forgiving somebody else is going to let somebody off the hook, but forgiving somebody else lets you out of slavery, okay? So you think, okay, here's one of the things that drives me crazy when people come in and talk to me in counseling settings. Like, I don't know if I can forgive. And I get that it's hard and I get that it's painful and I don't want to minimize that. But one of the things that we're saying in that is, you know what? What I did against God is not worse than what somebody else has done against me. No, no, no. Like, like, let's just clean this record. Whatever we've done against God, the holy and righteous God, is way worse than what somebody has done to you. And yet God has went to great lengths that you could be forgiven. And when you experience that forgiveness, we're not just forgiven people, but we pass that forgiveness on to other people and we forgive them. And I just want to tell you, as a dude whose dad left, as a dude that walked through some things, and as a dude who's just really angry and filled with unforgiveness for a number of years, the greatest thing that Jesus Christ can do for you is, one, help you to understand you're forgiven for your sin, but then to empower you to forgive the people who sinned against you. It's a game changer. Some of you guys are in marriages, and you got people put off right now because you don't want to do the hard work of saying, Jesus, I don't even know what it would feel like to let go of this bitterness. You, it's like a, a blanket you're just putting on to protect yourself from being hurt again. And it will destroy your life. And it will keep you from joy. And it will rob you from relationship. And it will erode any intimacy that you could have in that relationship. So can I just ask you right now, would you receive forgiveness for your sin? And would you ask God to help you to forgive other people? Amen? All right, so here's, here's where you get to learn from me today. And I love to do this at City Light is just to model that I'm more dysfunctional than you. Okay, uh, so this week I had one of those husband fail moments in my relationship with my wife. Love my wife, but uh, my wife is kind of the CEO of our social calendar, okay? So she kind of keeps track of everything we've got going on in our life. And I had this moment where I looked at our calendar, and I'm sure you've had this. It's May, okay? And uh, I look at it, and I look at it, and it's like, okay, there's a baby shower. 
which means that she's going to go to Target and buy six things we don't need and go to Costco and buy some kind of dip. And it means that I'm going to get in trouble if I eat something in our house and there's a crumb on the floor because it has to be perfectly clean for the baby shower. Okay, and then I see graduation parties and I see birthday parties and then I see um, all kinds of social events and city group events and church events and nonprofit fundraisers. And I look at I'm looking at our calendar and it is full for a month. And I'm thinking to myself, where's eat wings with the bros and watch (laughs) NBA playoffs and eat chicken wings? Where's that night on the calendar, honey? Because I'm not seeing it on the calendar. Where's hang out in my bro tank and just chill on the back deck and drink LaCroix? Okay, I said LaCroix. All right. Where's that on the calendar? All right. It's not on the calendar, but your extended family visiting from out of town's on the calendar for four days. Okay, so that's on the calendar. So I have that moment. And I come to the conclusion that my life's going to suck for the next month. And it's Kristen's fault. It's your fault. Okay, so the policy has been in our marriage before we commit to things, we talk about it and then we put it on there. And I say, you know, so that's been the policy. But I told her, I sat her down because, again, I'm coming to the conclusion it's her fault that we are in a place of suck that (laughs) that I say to her, honey, there's a new policy in this house and I'm not asking for permission to do guys night. I'm not asking for permission to have people over. And I'm not asking for permission to not come to these events. I'm going to do what I want to do with my life. (laughs) She said, yes, master. And that was the end of the conversation. (laughs) She made some cookies. No. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Did not go well. Did not go well. Did not, I was looking for Big Birth of the Couch. I had to leave. I had to get out the house for a little bit. Okay, so, so what happened is that ended not well. Tears came. I needed to repent. I get away. And here's the reality. Most of the stuff on the calendar is my fault. Um, I said yes to doing weddings. I said yes to have people over. There was stuff that I said yes to. And here's where it needed to go. It, I just need to remember. It's been five years since we started this church. We've started five other churches since we planted this church. We've hired over 50 people. I've literally had about 300 people through my home. My wife has made a meal for each and every one of them. I've probably done 100 weddings in five years. That's 100 Friday nights that my wife has been alone with the kids. It's 100 Saturdays that she was putting the kids to bed without me. Um, This thing has been an absolute story of God's grace. But my wife has been the one that made it possible. She has done everything she could just to keep up with what God is doing. Never complained. Never once said no to me inviting somebody over to the house. Never once denied me time to just get away and have a moment away. My wife has been a gracious and good gift. And so I had to come to her and say, listen, we're going to go back to the old policy. (laughs) And I need to acknowledge I was an idiot. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And uh, my wife forgave me. And you guys get that. Now, that's not a huge life-altering thing, but that happens every week in our lives, does it not? Like every, well, maybe not. You guys are like, actually, we're a lot more functional. That happens every week in my, that actually happens every week in our house. I do something dumb and have to, I'm really good at forgiveness is basically what I'm saying. Um, so I just say that because I think that's the only way we do life well with each other and we live out the gospel. If somebody's going to sin against you, let me just ask you, would you commit right now 
to being a person who's going to be slow to bail out on community, slow to bail out of relationship, and somebody who's going to be quick to forgive other people. That posture, I think, reflects the nature and character of God, not just to the people around us, but to the watching world. Amen? Number five, number seven, last thing is put on love, put on love. It says this, um, verse 14, above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The most important virtue of all is love. God has said, love God and love others. It's that simple if you want to know the heartbeat of Christianity. Jesus himself taught that they will know you are Christians by the way you love one another. How you love your spouse, how you love your city group, how you love your neighbors, how you love other Christians. It's a witness to the watching world. What should be the thing that defines our community? Love. Why? Because we've been loved by God. We know what that looks like. Jesus has modeled it. He's empowered it. We've received love, and now we're supposed to be a people who do love. And so, City Light, that's my invitation for us. City Light, as I close today, you know what I want to call us to? is not just memorizing some virtues, not just thinking about um, some responses to the gospel, not just being able to give a defense for our faith. What would it look like for us to be a church that actually put on these things and put into effect these things? I want to call you to be a person who puts on more patience in your life, to put on love in your life, to forgive one another in your life, to live in a relationship in a way that doesn't reflect, all of the, doesn't reflect all of the cultural values that we may have, but that would reflect the character of the kingdom of God, that we would show honor to people in ways they don't deserve because God has done that same thing to us. I think if we put on humility and we put on love and we put on compassion and we put on kindness, I don't think we just become moralistic Christians. I think we become people who look a lot like our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we be that kind of a people and may we be that kind of a church.